Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Soul Brew Podcast. This is episode 36 with Dr. Sharon Lambert. Sharon may possibly be one of our most listened to guests as of yet. Sharon has been on the Blind Boy podcast three times, which has over, on average, I think 1.25 million downloads. We've heard her on the Brezzy podcast as well. She speaks incredibly well about mental health. Stephen, can you introduce us to this guest, please? Yes, today we are speaking with Dr. Sharon Lambert, who is a lecturer in UCC. She is an expert in psychological trauma and secondary traumatic stress. So Sharon has loads of accolades. She has loads of experience giving talks and seminars and lecturing. And she has done an unbelievable amount of research and has so many papers to her name. Substance use, homelessness, adversity in childhood, mental health literacy, social exclusion, uh, drug-related bereavement, and loads of other things. And we got her on today, Aiden, because we are doing what? We got her on for two reasons. Number one, Sharon has just released a paper stating that mental health podcasts are one of the go-tos for people to get mental health information and she has uh, clinically proven that they are improving people's mental health so we thought that was huge to have her on and the second reason that we have have had her on is because Stephen and myself and a bunch of great people are doing Movember which is a men's mental health charity and we are fundraising through our socials we are fundraising by growing trying to grow mustaches and myself and a few others are also running uh, 60 kilometers for the month of uh, November. If you would like to donate to us, you can, or to our team, you can find all the links in our bio on our Instagrams and in the description of this episode. But without further ado, you're very welcome to sit down or walk and enjoy this episode of us and our conversation with Sharon Lambert. Thank you very much, Sharon, for joining us. And as we always do, we talk about coffee at the start of each episode. So maybe you'd like to start by telling us a, a cup of coffee that you enjoy down in Cork. I like a flash white. And I actually heard uh, during the week, I can't remember, there was some survey on the radio that said that Cork people drink more flat whites than any other county so i may be personally <laughs> responsible for that actually um yeah so i i drink flat white and um i try to not go to franchises i prefer to go to independent coffee houses is there any is there any in particular that you know that the people of the people of cork can go to and have a good cup of coffee well, a lot of people at the moment are visiting is cafe um, so they're a, a Palestinian family who have been living in Cork and have their cafe there for a very long time. And obviously they've been very worried and very upset um, and concerned. Their staff as well are, are concerned about their own family members. So so um, lots of people in Cork will be making an extra special effort to, to go along to his cafe on their way to work, I think, in the morning at the moment. That's lovely. Yeah, and I think... It kind of touches on a, on a couple of topics that we're hoping to chat about is that sort of social connection that um, coffee brings and that connection with people, whether it's the owners that you spoke of or 
you know, friends. I'm sure you join friends often for coffee or work colleagues. Um, and I suppose the connection that has uh, with your social connections is that connection of your mental health as well, which is kind of where we're going to start. Um, I know you're an expert, as we kind of spoke about, on psychological trauma and psychology and mental health and, and different things. So maybe uh, at a real uh, basic level, if possible, to make, maybe kind of define what mental health is. The mental health is something that we all have, and it's either great or it's not doing so great. And I think sometimes when people talk about mental health, they assume that we're talking about mental illness, which is, is different than mental health. So we all have it and we can have good days and bad days and then people can become quite unwell sometimes. Um, and one of the things that we have gotten a little bit better at, but we could do a lot more is you hear a lot of talk about, you know, how important it is to maintain your physical health and, you know, don't have too much thought. Uh, but we still don't talk enough about how important it is to have good mental health. You know, people do go, you know, they go running and they say it's for their physical health, but it also benefits their mental health. So I think we should always be, we be talking about both um, all the time because we still have a little bit of a way to go to reduce stigma in relation to mental illness. What is good mental health and what is like suboptimal mental health in your opinion or in, in your background so the good mental health is where one of the things is that life is not always great so things happen frequently to people that we have no control over and you know about that um with experiences that you've had in your community um so you have things that are are really extreme stressors that are absolutely going to impact on somebody's mental health and then you have other things that are are small stressors that are sometimes considered to be you know routine parts of life that you're supposed to be able to cope with they're still not nice when they happen but you're supposed to be able to tolerate them so so kind of positive stress and, and negative stress so if you experience a negative stressor if you've good mental health you should be able to to respond to that and have, you know, you, is it appropriate to be sad? Is it appropriate to be angry? So that you have appropriate responses to it, that you can feel them and that you're okay with feeling them and, and then that there's some kind of recovery. So we're not all going to feel fabulous all of the time. That's not normal. And if you feel like that, there's something wrong. So having good mental health means that you can cope with positive experiences you can cope with negative experiences and then suboptimal mental health is where you have stressors and sometimes small stresses that shouldn't really you know push you over the edge but they do and a lot of the time so you can have suboptimal mental health because there are things that we recognize as traumas because something happens and we say that's a traumatic experience and then there are other things that happen that we might not recognize as traumas but people will will feel them as trauma or experience them as trauma. And then that obviously impacts on their mental health. So there's loads of, of things. So we're living in a very busy world where people are, you know, kind of that neoliberal capitalist. We have to have all of this stuff and we have to cram as much time in as possible. So for a lot of people, 
the demands are outweighing the resources and people don't have enough rest. They don't have enough downtime. They don't have enough social connection or the social connection is, is quite chaotic because it's, you know, it has to be amazing and it has to be fabulous. So, so things have become quite fast. There's not enough slowness. And then that is affecting almost everybody. There are very few people who are not impacted by that. And that has an impact on mental health. That was a very long answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was great, though. And I, like uh, one thing I, I just kind of touch on there about how one person can experience an event so much differently to another person. I think it's really important to kind of remember that you know, I think a lot of us say it is like, oh, you know, I feel bad, but there's other people in worse situations and, you know, that type of language um, around their own mental health. Do you think that's a, a problem? How would you say uh, people be wary that they might be saying something that's actually detrimental to themselves? I mean, it's very easy to always, particularly if you look kind of in a, even in a global if I think about what's going on today, right now in, in different parts of the world, it would be, you could say, I can't feel sorry for myself today because there's all of these people having these worse experiences. But there's there's that saying that you can't pour from an empty cup. So if you don't look after yourself and your own mental health, then, then you become unable to care for and have capacity for others. Um, so we all have a capacity to deal with a certain amount of stress. The stress is part of life, unfortunately, um, and there's good stress and there's bad stress. But then you can reach a point where you've just experienced too much stress and you can reach allostatic load. So that so the body just says, actually, I'm not, not really able to, to cope with this much stress and you can become physically unwell, and psychologically unwell. And sometimes that tipping point might not be something that somebody imagines as a big massive stressor but that it has come on the back of, of loads of other stressors. So if you can't be kind to yourself, because you always think that everybody else is in a worse situation, then you're, you're not caring for yourself. And you have to be careful with that, that you don't get to a point where that long-term neglect of your own well-being that a small, something that might seem small to somebody else is the thing that really pushes you into capacity and I mean there's certainly plenty going on now I mean we're all at risk now of vicarious trauma because of the images that we're seeing on social media or on the television every day of horrific suffering that human beings are experiencing and and you might say and there's people who are saying I feel bad because I don't want to watch the news today and is that selfish because you know there's these people and their experience in this horror, but it's you have to to listen to your heart and to your gut. And if your your body is telling you that you've reached capacity for bad news, then you have to take a break. Because if you don't, you will you can get burnt out from witnessing other people's traumas. And then if you do, you you can't help yourself or anybody else then. Um, just going back to something that you said there. So my background is personal training. So I look after, help coach people through their physical health, through exercise and through nutrition. Um, and obviously that the mental health, but sort of seeps into that. But what are, you know, like really maybe keystone things that people can do that are, are looking after their mental health? 
what does that look like? I mean, we all know what they are. So you should reduce the amount of alcohol that you're drinking. You probably shouldn't use cocaine very frequently. You know, so there's all of these things that people are doing that we know are, are, are bad for their mental health. Rest, screen time, all of that. So that's for that advice is for people that I call the worried well. So we'll say if I'm really tired today and um, if I have good housing and I have a permanent job. So if I have those protective factors, um, it's easy for me then to to do the small steps, the little things, because I have space in my head to be able to do that. I'm always very careful about saying, you know, do these things for your mental health, because some of those really obvious practical things, which we absolutely know are good for your, your mental health, you know, physical activity and 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 what you eat and 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 watching how much drugs and alcohol you consume. When you have somebody who's experienced a chronic amount of stress or who's very unwell right now, they will really struggle to implement the small steps. So then that's where we as a society have to come in and support people who are in a really difficult way. Um, often in organizations, so an organization might say to me, will you come and give the, uh, our staff a talk about self-care? And I will say no, because actually, when we do things like that, what we're doing is we're putting responsibility on individuals. So if you're an organization, for example, that pushes your staff really hard and they have to work really hard and there's loads of people in your organization who don't have permanent contracts, so they feel like they can't take a day off. Um, if you're somebody who's self-employed and you can't take a day off sick because you need the money to pay the mortgage. So all of those system issues have to be addressed if we're going to talk about individual change as well. So there are, are steps that are appropriate for people who have lots of protective factors. And then there are steps around positive mental health that will not work for somebody who's in their booth. And that's when the rest of us have to step in and we have to help them because they're not going to have the capacity or the energy or the motivation to be able to do the things that we're talking about. So if we were trauma-informed, for example, so Aiden, if you said, if you were my personal trainer, I wouldn't wish that upon you now, but if you were Aiden, and you you said, Sharon, you know, is always cancelling or whatever. So if we were trauma and for, and if you knew my mental health is bad, instead of saying Sharon has no motivation, we would say Sharon is struggling with her motivation. And we would reframe it that way to recognize that there's all of this other stuff that's not just within me individually. And then say, what can we do? That would be helpful for Sharon to get her motivation back so that she can participate in this exercise. Yeah, I think that's something I've been listening to a good bit of um, podcasts and uh, reading bits recently about that sort of society level change that's needed. And it's quite hard to get your head around a bit because it's so obviously society is everybody. Um, and there's a lot of there's just so many elements and so many different um, avenues and different types and different things. So I was kind of wondering, is there anything do you think that, you know, practically someone could do? So I suppose my work in Freuga as a youth worker, um, I'm able to help young people in that role um, through my job. Um, would you give any advice maybe to people that don't work in a job like a PT, like Aiden or a youth worker like me, where we can help people at that individual level um, what can people do at an individual level or at a societal level yeah so I suppose 
when you think about it, I suppose, so I'm a psychologist and my area is trauma. So, so naturally, the things that I tend to focus on are the most extreme. So it's often difficult for me to think about the kind of the softer skills that you need. So, you know, I would say to people who are working, and I've worked as a youth worker before as a psychologist. So, so if I was working with a young person, for example, who had poor mental health and they were living in homelessness, I would say to a psychologist or a therapist, I'd say when you're meeting them and you're trying to work with them on their mental health, how is their mental health going to be okay when they're living in homelessness or they're at risk of eviction? So I would be saying to those people, people in positions of, of power, teachers, psychologists, etc. And, and I'm not going to say youth workers because I just because I know I am a youth, I used to be a youth worker. I know that they do this stuff, but but not enough people do. So psychologists um, or teachers are they ringing the local council and saying this is our client or this is our student and we're really worried about them? What are you doing? You know about that. So so actually. When we're talking about an individual's mental health, we need to look at them in the context of their environment and their community and and all of those other factors. And then just say, um, how can we, you know, help this individual deal with the mental distress that they're they're experiencing while recognizing the context that they're in? And how can we can we intervene? in any of those places. So the United Nations and the World Health Organization this year produced a joint document that said that we have to stop responding to mental distress as an individual problem, because it's not. Mental distress happens in the context of environments where there are poverty and discrimination, violence, poor housing. So, so we can be very good at individuals at, at taking care of ourselves. And then there are other individuals who who can't do that because their environment or their context is so not working for what it needs to be for a human. And I would say for for us, for people who are working in that space and with individuals, that actually we need to consider. So I said this recently, I actually said advocacy is the psychological intervention. So if somebody comes to me and they are, you know, being bullied in school and the school hasn't responded or their experience in homelessness or whatever, I could spend an hour with them talking to them about that. And then I could also make a 10 minute phone call. And that is also an intervention, a psychological intervention. Yeah, it's almost like a preventative for the future or potentially preventative future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so that's what the World Health Organization and the UN are saying is that we have to stop seeing mental distress is something that's contained within individuals and that we have to start thinking about the mm. communities that we build and where do people live, the housing that they're in, the schools that they go to, are they experiencing discrimination, etc. Um what about what about people, you know, that are suffering with with mental health issues that aren't in that social economic background that the people who are who you would deem successful and out of the blue, you know, you, you hear these horror stories all the time. They could be very successful. They could have families and, and they die by suicide. What is, or, or, or something along those lines, what are telltale signs of someone who is very distressed and what are ways to intervene with, with that? So, there are people, so, so mental health affects everybody. 
across every socioeconomic background. What we do know is that there are issues in in lots of so people in their child's childhoods can experience issues irrespective of, of whether they're poverty or so. So for example, it's estimated that around two hundred thousand children at any one time in, in Ireland is living with a parent who who is problem drinking and that that child then may be adopting additional responsibilities not appropriate to their age because the parent is struggling to care for them and that happens in lots of different homes and then we don't really talk about that that much and then that person becomes an adult and they might be a very highly functioning successful adult but there may have been this thing that happened that actually has they've been able to mask it you know but it has caused distress and then we haven't sufficiently created an environment, particularly for men, where they are able to talk about their feelings. So women have no problem in general. You know, there are women obviously that do keep secrets too, but, but women usually are quite good to talk to each other and they're you know able to say, I don't feel great today, or I'm very worried, or I'm sad, or I'm frustrated, or I'm lonely. And we haven't done enough to create spaces where men can feel like that and that starts at a very young age I I, I did a I was only talking to my own students about this today that when you go into um, I'm trying to, I'm not going to name a shop but you, when you go into a clothing store that sells um, clothes for children um, and you look at the t-shirts for boys and the t-shirts for girls and it'll say on the girls t-shirt you know be kind awesome fabulous yada yada yeah and then on the boys t-shirts this is young children it'll say strong powerful warrior brah, you know all that kind of stuff so so at a very young age we're saying it's it's okay to talk about your feelings and kindness and being gentle and, and caring if you're a girl but if you're a boy you still have to do this strong stuff that we keep saying is toxic and bad for boys, but we're we're still doing it. Yeah, that's something that Aidan and I have a lot of um, gripes towards. Is that uh, yeah, there seems to be a lot more podcasters and Instagram influencers that are men, and you know, are tend to be selling courses and you know on how to be a man and how to be a masculine man, and but it just shows that it's not just these guys doing this to to make a living but it seems to be at a societal level then with like the clothing brands and you can see it in you know like yeah when you say that now when i think of all the sort of clothing shops you go into the boys pajamas or spider-man superman the girls as pink unicorns uh, and you can see it's, it's it's even the words then you know be kind you won't find boys pajamas that say be kind mm-hmm. and boys need kindness too mm-hmm. with with what steven's talking on there and like the kind of what's happening and one on one level men are being told or little boys are being told nearly from from that age up what they should be and now with the kind of deconstruction of masculinity and this this thing that's appearing of of these sort of right-wing men who are selling what a man should be and what a woman should be and, and left-wing and all that there. Like, there's a lot of confusion out there. I think a lot of men are lost, in particular, 
um not Stephen and myself but we're doing Movember at the moment um and globally the the stats are that that's um a man dies by suicide every minute so there seems to be this vacuum left of 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 signposting for men or or what a man should be or should look like and even i hate using that word should but have you a, an opinion on that um or what you're seeing in social media at the moment yeah so obviously yeah i do see it not as much because i tend to block it and mute it but but i i am aware of it i, I i'll tell you i have had students young women i that i you know might interact with will say to me that you know if they were going to go on a date or something and if the the guy says a particular name of a particular they see that as a red flag straight away um because they might be aware of the content that that person is producing and and it it, it doesn't sound respectful um so to be a man doesn't mean that you are in power and in charge of another human being you know it, you can be equal to people around you so it's about who do you do you feel confident and comfortable in yourself with who you are or do you need to create this other persona and a persona that has been sold to you by somebody who may or may not even believe in what they're saying but there's money to be made in it so there, you're right, there is this vacuum there, because one of the things that we've known for a while now is that when you look at studies of youth mental health for the last kind of 10, 15 years, is that a lot of young people feel very worried about the future um, because of climate or war or housing for lots of different reasons. So there's a lot of worry about the future. There's a lot of young people who feel very lonely as well. Um, there's a lot of people who feel very socially isolated and disconnected and, and everybody wants to be part of a community and to be part of something. Um, so when you, you come across, I can't tell you how easy it is to do what they're doing. It is very easy to recognize that there are a group of people who are feeling disconnected, worried, lonely and lost. And once you see that, you can say, there's almost kind of motivational interviewing around it so you can say I can tap into that because because all they want is they want to feel good they want to feel connected they want to feel seen and they want to feel heard so all I have to do is is pick up on on their negative feelings tell them that I hear them and I see them and then they go oh I feel understood and then once I have that once I have them connected into me they know I feel understood then I can start selling my toxic brand. Um, but that stuff that they're selling very rarely makes people feel better in the long run because what if, if people really reflect on, on some of those messages and what they're hearing is lots of women don't want to date men who say that kind of stuff. So if you think it's going to increase the dating pool, it won't. Um, in terms of family relationships, people argue with their families about the kind of things that they might say that families would say. That's not a nice thing to say about another group of people. Um, it, you're setting yourself up to this standard of, of man that you might never achieve and, and nor should you either. Why can't we all just be different and have respect for each other based on our differences like we used to? And anything that you're listening to that creates a sense of of 
making you dislike another group of people based on their their religion or their gender or their sexuality. Anything that you listen to that promotes division rather than cohesion is absolutely ultimately worse for your mental health in the long run because hate towards other groups, hate is a very negative emotion. And when you direct it out at other people, you also retain some of that within yourself, within your core. It's not good for your mental health. I understand why um, people um, would be attracted to it because they're looking for that sense of belonging and they are being sold a pup that is, is ultimately not good for their mental health in the long run. Yeah, I think there's a lot of information out there. And I think that's one of the things that really drew us towards asking you to come on as well was a paper of yours um, that we read, which was about podcasts. So it was called Podcasts as a Tool for Enhancing Mental Health Literacy and an Investigation of Mental Health Related Podcasts. Um, and I suppose from reading that, um, our podcast, although it's not necessarily about mental health, we covered quite a lot in a lot of our episodes and different bits and pieces and some of the guests we've had on. And um, and just looking at the findings from that. Um, so we started this podcast a number of years ago and the reasons that we did it almost align exactly with the reasons why people are seeking out mental health related podcasts. Um, so maybe you could explain maybe the positives that you find from that paper and, and mental health related podcasts. Yeah. So, so Nisha Quilte was doing his master's here in, in UCC and we were looking at, um, a research project. So how that came about was I have been on podcasts and one of the things that struck me about when I go on a podcast would be, I would get contacted afterwards you know I might get an email from somebody and that person might have been struggling for a while with their mental health and they might have had so I talk a lot about trauma obviously and sometimes things that happen in childhood that person might be an adult and you know everything is looks okay and it's going great in their life but actually they feel really depressed all the time or they feel really angry all the time and they have to try and keep a lid on that and then they'd they'd come across it and they'd say I you know I they'd say now that I think about it living in a home where there was domestic violence or or living in a home with a parent who had a mental health issue or living in, in a home with a parent who, who was drinking too much as a child I didn't think about the fact that that might have actually considered me or might have impacted me up for my whole life so I started thinking a lot about how you know in psychology and in mental health spaces that we take for granted what people know um, and then mm. often when we speak about mental health particularly psychologists we don't often speak in a language that people understand so I was interested in that about you know and, and you talked about men's mental health so we know for example that men have poorer mental health literacy than women we know that and how can you know that you have poor mental health how can you know why you have poor mental health and how can you know how to respond to it if you don't have the literacy around it? So I was interested in why do people listen to mental health podcasts and what do they get from it? So, so Nisha created the survey and, and got that up and running. And what we found was that 
people with lower levels. So, so people were listening to podcasts to learn more about themselves or to learn more about other people in their lives. What it was also doing was it was decreasing stigma. So particularly hearing personal stories. So, you know, where somebody would come on and say, look, I struggled with my mental health. This is what it was like. So there was that, you know, you hear a lot of, oh, it's good to talk, but who do you talk to and how do you talk about it and what words do you use? So hearing other people talking about their lived experience of mental health was really valued by participants because it helped to normalize their feelings. Another thing as well was people were getting language around words and feelings and experiences that they perhaps didn't have before. So it, it decreased stigma, increased health-seeking behavior, um, and it, in particular for those groups who are most excluded, so men, um, people with lower levels of education, and people with a lower socioeconomic status. So the paper that you were talking about, that was the statistical analysis of the data. But one of the things that was really interesting as well was often when we create surveys, you have this little box at the end that says any other comments and nobody ever fills that in, right? Or else somebody might say something like, this was a stupid fucking survey. <laughs> it's like, there's never anything in it that's really useful, you know? Um, but what was really interesting about this particular survey is I think we ended up with like 45 pages of comments on, on Word documents. So I've never seen that level of investment in the comments section. So that is a separate paper that will be published hopefully in the new year. So what you get from that is the is the meat on the bones of, of the statistics. So people were saying things like, I always felt like I wasn't good enough or I felt very isolated. And um, people were when they'd hear somebody else's experience about mental health, they'd say it helped me to have more compassion for myself. Or if they were living with somebody who had a mental health in an issue or, or an addiction, that they were having more compassion for other people around them. And this comes back to something we were talking about a minute ago about, so some podcasts are unethical because if they make you feel compassion for yourself but not other people, that's not a world where you can survive because mm. society requires connection if you and if you if you want to talk about many men look at bear grills right and when he mm -hmm. does programs like the island and things like that um i have heard him say this on multiple occasions is when he drops you know 12 people onto an island somewhere the person who will survive the longest is the person who understands that they require the community to support them. So irrespective of their physical ability and their stature and all that, so you could be the biggest, toughest guy on the island. But if you get ill, you get a tummy bug, you need the other people around you to help you to survive. And he always says that, that you know, the tough guys who come out here, uh, they will not succeed if they don't realize that you cannot survive without connection and community. Yeah, it's a uh, it kind of, it's funny every time we're talking everything's just so intertwined we kind of started talking about the social connection and um and what it what comes from ourselves talking to the podcast like we, we kind of did this podcast for ourselves in one sense um just to kind of figure our own shit out um and then hopefully help Which others we're still we're still trying to figure it out <laughs> as we go along i'm figuring my shit out every day and i'm nearly 50. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it kind of make, makes it timeless nearly because we're, we're going to spend so long figuring it out. But I suppose one of the things I found that people find mental health podcasts as useful as counseling uh, and like uh, out of the list of reasons um, or usefulness of, of listening to podcasts that the GP and was the lowest and then even mental health services and charity services quite low as well. Um, so what does that kind of tell you? Do you think about what kind of shape the world is? I think that what, yeah, what it tells you about is time. So if I go into my GP because we don't have enough GPs, they will be able to give me five or six minutes. That's a reality. And it doesn't mean that I have a bad GP. That's just the reality. The other thing is GPs are medical physicians. They don't do mental health training. So if I go in and I say my mental health is really bad, that's not their space nor do they have an hour every week to see me so they'll just refer you on so it's not surprising that they would rank it as low I suppose and I'm taking a very objective view there but the problem is is for the person who is really distressed their first port of call is the GP so -hmm. if you're going in and you're really distressed what is your expectation of what you're going to receive I know what mine is because I've thought about it but if if I haven't and I have experienced you know anxiety and depression myself in the past so, so I know I'm not going to go to, I know where I'm going to go and what resources I'm going to use. But if this is your first time reaching out for help and you go to the place that's not set up for that, there's a, there's, there's a danger that it's going to make you feel worse or feel rejected. Now, when we move into the mental health services, then that's a different story. So they are supposed to be good at this. Mm. Um, so people rated podcasts as being more helpful than mental health services. So that's a little bit worrying. So when we looked at the qualitative data, so the things that people put into the comments, it's, it's you know, that they go to, a, they wait a very long time to go to a service. They go in and they meet somebody um, and sometimes they felt connected to them. Sometimes they didn't, you know, they get X number of sessions. It wasn't enough. Somebody might say to them, you know, the reason why you're having these difficulties is X, Y, and Z. But because they're so depressed or they're so anxious, they haven't taken in all of the information. So one of the things that was useful for them about podcasts was that they could listen to them whenever they wanted at a time that was good for them. And that's not how mental health services either. You get an appointment at a particular time, even if that's a bad time for you, that's the time you're going. Mm -hmm. So this was a resource that was available to them at a time that worked for them. If they heard something they didn't understand, they they could rewind it and listen again, and then they could Google it. So they had time to engage with the content um, and they really appreciated the mix then of lived experience and the professional. So, you know, a, a professional might come on a podcast and they might say, well, this is what trauma looks like. This is what it might feel like. Mm-hmm. And then the following week that somebody who has experienced trauma comes on and they say, you know, in the real world, this is the way I was behaving. This is, you know, the impact it had on me and on the relationships or I was drinking too much, I was using drugs or uh, over-exercising or, or, or whatever open mechanism that they had. So they were able to combine those two, two things and put them together and have a really comprehensive picture of what this all means. And you don't get that in mental health services because they are also under-resourced. So they're, if you need to go and see somebody for a year and a half, are you going to get that? Is somebody going to give you a year and a half in a mental health service? You're going to get it if you can pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that comes, again, how it's all intertwined, the whole, you know, societal change that is needed and that 
it can't all fall on the individual because sometimes you can't access what you need. Yeah. But the other thing as well about the podcast is that people were listening and then they were saying, actually, I know what I need now. So when I do go back, this is what I'm going to be demanding for myself because because people had increased their mental health literacy, they were able to say, ah, I experienced this issue, which has caused my anxiety. So those two things are linked. And I heard somebody talking about CBT or acceptance and compassion therapy or, you know, they'll have heard something and say, Mm. that's what I think is what I need. And often you don't have the space. If you're meeting somebody for 50 minutes, who's a total stranger, total stranger, Mm -hmm. um, and you can be quite guarded. You don't want to look, loads of people don't want to look stupid either. So if they don't understand something, they don't say it and they just leave not knowing what has just happened. And the other thing as well is this is one of the most important things you need to know about when you're going for therapy. You shouldn't go for therapy with somebody you're not connect, you don't feel connection to. So like I love going for therapy and I will go if I am worried about my mental health. But I went to four or five people before I found somebody that I liked. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with those people. Um, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with uh, any of, of those people. I just did not feel connected to them. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and, and people go, you see. I went for therapy one time. Um, it's funny. I've been in therapy a couple of times and it's always been, it's always been a woman therapist that I've connected with. And I went one time to, um, a male therapist and, we had one session and I came out and I was like, I was like, I wasn't sure. And I went back another time and we were about halfway in and in fairness, he, he stopped it as well. He was like, he's like, I'm not, I'm not the guy for you. And that, and that was it. And I went on and I found somebody else, I found a, another uh, female therapist and it was great. And I thought, and I, my hat was often because I knew there was the connection just wasn't happening. Um, and, and so did he. So it, it was, it was great that he owned up to that. And he, he signposted me, actually. He was like, here is a couple of people who I think um, would, would be better dealing with with your or better therapist for you and went on and, and found somebody else. So I can completely agree that not one size fits all. And same, like, with anything, even in personal training, like, there, it's just some clients you don't click with and they don't click with you. And and I would just tell them, I'd say, hey, look, this isn't working for for either of us you know maybe you'd be better going to, to such and such a coach or such and such a trainer and i think that's a really professional thing to do and also like a, a mature thing to do as well and i'm really glad that you had the experience because i think there are times when when a third i've actually not heard that many occasions where a therapist will name it and they'll go you know what i can feel that you're not mm-hmm. really it's not for you and because what happens is is therapists are often self-employed and they're under huge pressure too to have an income so they're like you know god i don't know if this person likes me but i have to keep going um and then i worry about you know it's such a big step particularly for men to go to therapy so they might be building themselves up and be really anxious oh my god i go for therapy what's this going to be like and then they go in and it's like oh this is awful and then they go i can never do this again because this didn't work and it's not that the therapy didn't work that relationship didn't work so it's like you know if you were going for to a barber and you went in and and you came out and you didn't really like the way that they cut your hair you wouldn't keep going back you would go somewhere and Mm -hmm. and then you go I love the way that fella does my hair I'm always going to go back there 
Therapy is mm-hmm. the same. If you go in and you think, ah, I don't know about this one, then you move on until you find the one that works for you. And always go to somebody who has been recommended by somebody else. It's probably a great analogy, actually, the, the barber, because so many dads I know have their barber. And, you know, you, five lads could have five different their barbers. They're the one for them. And uh, that other one's not nah, he's shite, but that's my guy. And and like, and if you rang me and you said, oh, Sharon, you know, who, who do you go to see? And I say, oh, my God, I think they're great. And I would always say, you mightn't like them, though. Hmm. <laughs> and if you don't, don't feel bad. Just give me a shout and I'll come up with another name. Mm-hmm. I guess within that as well, though, there's also not only the therapist, but um, the types of therapy that are also available. So like talk therapy might not be something. It's always something that's actually worked for me and I've got a lot out of it. Um, but I know a friend of mine now is doing like art therapy and she's able to being able to access things that she could never do with talk therapy. So I think it's also I, I don't know how, what your opinion is and is on different types of therapies as well for people. I, I think that like you hit the nail on the head there a minute ago when you said it one size doesn't fit all. I mean, I'm obviously a talker. I talk therapy works very well for me. I keep, Same as I keep talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So but I know other people who 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 don't enjoy, you know, sitting down talking for a whole hour and who would struggle with that. So uh, I'm a big fan of, of of art therapy, music therapy, drama therapy, and there's walk and talk therapy as well. So mm-hmm. some people don't like to make eye contact. Some people don't feel safe in a room on their own with somebody else, depending on their experiences. So um, my, my brother, my brother is not much of a talker. And the only time I can get anything out of him is when we're driving because he doesn't have to look at me. That's the only time where I'd yeah. be able to get something. So it's it's side on, you know, so I, I, that walk and talk maybe <laughs> would be something like that mm-hmm. there that would sit somebody who can't look you maybe directly in the eye when they're talking or particularly men, I guess. Yeah. And when I worked with young people in the community and I worked with um, particularly when I worked with boys, often a lot of our conversations would be where one of them would kick a ball up against the wall and um then so they'd kick the ball and then I'd kick it back and then they kick the ball and then I'd kick it back and um no eye contact would be made we're not even kicking it to each other it's, it's against the wall but it, there would be a, a, a an easier conversation than than sitting in a room with an old one like me where I'm going to say how are you feeling because sometimes people don't know how they're feeling, actually. They just don't know. Mm. And then they might say, look, you know, I'd say how are things today? And they'd say, shit. And i say, what does that mean? They don't know what that means, only that it's shit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that takes time to, to tease that out, you know? Yeah, I see it with youth work. That's sometimes the, the best way to have conversations like that, playing a game of pool. Or, you know, if you sat down and said, okay, tell me how you feel. Ah, uh, grand. But if you sit or you play a game of pool or just play like a PlayStation or Xbox with a young person, they'll soon tell you, you know, something happened or whatever. And then you can kind of follow that up and, and do whatever is necessary. But I think it all, that's why I think this paper is so good that it just shows that talking about mental health and using the language is really important to just use it and get more people using it. But one thing I'm a wee bit conscious of, I suppose we're, neither of us are experts in terms of mental health or or trauma or anything. 
would you would you give any advice for us say, as two podcasters that you know what type of language to maybe avoid or is there anything that you'd uh, be wary of of po- people that aren't qualified about what they say or even where we should signpost people at the end of our podcast or anything like that so in terms of um so i know loads like i do know a good few people who are doing podcasts so so one of the things is what i always say is is terminal like a big thing for me is language and appropriate language so um i don't know everything about everything right i don't know everything about mental health i don't know everything about trauma i am always learning me as an individual so i might meet somebody who's culturally culturally or ethnically different than me and i might say something that's not appropriate just because i don't know you know so so the thing is about being open to learning all the time so and I say this to my students as well, you know, if you're going to be talking about addiction or homelessness, have you Googled the terminology guide around what's appropriate and what's not? So like I have a big thing around language. I would never describe anyone addiction as, you know, if somebody's in recovery that you say that they're clean. I don't use that word because it implies that one one time they were they were dirty. So trying to one of the things for me is about trying to, to tackle stigmatizing language. So I'm constantly checking to see what are the resource guides around appropriate language. When I signpost people to services, they're always services that I've checked out myself. So I will ring them because sometimes what somebody says they do on, a, on their website is not what they do in reality. So I remember one time um, sending a young person to a particular service that they said they provided counseling for for people who were feeling suicidal this young person used to smoke a joint every night when they were going to bed so if you're working in the addiction service and somebody comes in and they say i smoke one joint every night going to bed that's not considered problem use you are not going to be seen in an addiction service um it's not have you got a drug debt are the guards coming to your house have you hurt yourself or have you hurt other people no okay addiction service is not interested in that and then they wouldn't see him because he said that he was smoking one joint every night. But if he'd said he was having one beer before he went to bed every night, they would have. You know what I mean? So so that was my mistake that I ref- and then that he felt a sense of rejection. So for all of us in society, when somebody comes to us and says, I'm, you know, I'm feeling this way or that way, that it's it's really especially if they're very low. You know, if somebody's feeling really, really low, they don't have always a lot of energy to be ringing around themselves. So if we're going to to refer somebody anywhere, if you, you know, if your friend comes to you and says that they're feeling quite down and um, maybe it might be useful for you to ring the services and find out what they do and they don't do before you you give your friend advice. You know, because often, you know, you could be with somebody and your friend might say, oh, I've experienced this thing. And you, you go online, you go, and you go, oh, look, it's this place in such and such place. And they do that because we're trying to be helpful and trying to help our friends. And then our friends might go there and they might have a really negative rejecting experience. So like that's not just that's something that all of us, every single person that's listening to this, when our friends come to us in trouble, that we make sure that we're sending them to the right place. Yeah, I think that's deadly advice and it's i suppose we're always kind of seeking advice everyone we talk to it's almost like you can't get enough advice but i think that's like something really practical um is just doing that little bit of research whether it's for yourself or for a friend or for um it's a good tip for us i think going forward and and i made this mistake six weeks ago when i was talking to somebody and they were describing a very difficult situation that they were in it was in relation to housing but it kind of intersected with domestic violence 
and they had done 300 different tried 300 different avenues and i said well i've just looked and this organization also does this and then you know they are under so much pressure and they had that little space to make one phone call and they rang that organization and then that organization gave them advice that they already knew um so i rang the organization and i said look on your website it says that you do advocacy and they said yeah and i said but you don't do signposting and that's different and if i was ringing you looking for advocacy i would imagine that that means that you're going to do some you know advocate on my behalf um but what you're doing is you're signposting me back to the services that i've already been on so that was a mistake that i made six weeks ago and so we all make those mistakes all of the time um and that's the most important thing is about being open to being wrong, being open to constantly learning and knowing that we don't know everything. Yeah, as hard as that is to admit sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's really it's important. Yeah. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, we have loads out of this, and I think this will be one of those podcasts that I'll be probably listening back to myself a couple of times and and taking bits and pieces out of it. Um. As always, we kind of give the guests um, the final word. If you had anything that you'd like to wrap this conversation up with or um, anything that maybe that is, is still on your mind, the floor is all yours. We're living in a world that is very challenging. And there are lots of shiny initiatives and interventions and people trying to sell you lifestyles online. And some of them are not good for you. The most important thing that anyone can do for their mental health is very, very simple. And that's being kind to themselves and being kind to others. Because when you are kind to yourself, you have a good relationship with yourself. And when you're kind to others, you have a good relationship with other people. And physical health and mental health flourishes when we have good social positive connections. And when something goes wrong and it happens, bad things happen. Um, when you have those environments that are based on mutual respect and kindness, you are more likely to be able to, to get your way through the dark.